We have been in this series, Principles in Ruth, and have discovered that these principles that we find in this book are timeless and principles that work throughout all of Scripture and are designed to make a difference in the life of the follower of Jesus. Today I want to preach from the subject, Discerning God's Will, and we'll be looking specifically at Ruth chapter 3. There was an ad in the newspaper that read like this, SBF is seeking companionship. Age and gender do not matter. I love early morning walks, laying down in bed while you rub all over me. Call today to arrange to meet. That ad received more than 10,000 phone calls and probably would not have made the news if all the callers had hung up disappointed, or rather if all the callers had not hung up disappointed. They were anticipating companionship with SBF, a single black female, only to discover that SBF was a St. Bernard female. The ad was written by the SPCA to place a dog in a home. Trying to discern God's will for your life can be sometimes as confusing as that ad. It's not easy. Whether it's finding the right spouse, purchasing the right car or home, getting the right job, figuring out what God wants us to do is difficult. In Ruth chapter 3, we find four principles for discerning God's will. We must be wise in terms of how God speaks to us. We must be biblical in terms of how we act. We must be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And we must be patient in how we respond. Let's look at the text. Ruth chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. What a tremendous passage of, of scripture that concludes with this verse. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. The first point, we must be wise in terms of understanding how God speaks to us. On the surface, it looks like Naomi is playing matchmaker in her own skill, and in her own way. But there's more than what 
is on the surface. In verse one, she says, should I not seek rest for you? Meaning that should I not seek to find a husband for you, that everything may go well for you here in Bethlehem, like it was going in Moab when you were married to my son, Melian. Well, Ruth is very much aware that in the land of Bethlehem and as an Israelite, God has a plan for how life ought to be conducted, and he has a plan and provision for those women who have lost their husbands. God's plan, as it relates to Ruth, can be seen in two ways. First, in Deuteronomy 25, we have the law concerning marriage of your brother's wife, should your brother die and the two of you dwell together. The second aspect of God's plan in terms of property, because women did not really have inheritance in the land, and land reverted every 50 years on the year of Jubilee back to the husband's family or clan, uh, that there was an opportunity for redemption, for Redeemer, to buy back property. In going to Moab, they had to sell it. And now, first right of refusal of buying it back is to that of a redeemer. The plan that Naomi uh, concocts is in accordance with how she understands God speaking through scripture. If a man was not willing to perform the vow of marrying his brother's wife. Uh, there was provision that the widow would take off the sandal from his foot and spit in his face. And he would be known throughout all of Israel as the man in whose face was spit. Naomi then in telling Ruth to go down and to lay at his feet is not being sexual, but is being very much biblical. To call Boaz to their remembrance of the law and understanding his role and responsibility, and in saying that she would be submissive to him. Beloved, as far as principles are concerned, what that says to you and me is we need to be wise in terms of how God speaks to us. Can God use an animal like he did the donkey? Yes, he can. Can God talk and have a bird speak? Yes, he can. But God has given us 66 books in his word. We call it the Bible. Why would God need to speak through an animal when he has given us his printed written word that we may read for ourselves, digest, and understand. Secondly, God will never contradict what he has already said in his word. That's why the Bible says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. But he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool.
So what do I do when I'm looking for wisdom, when I want to do or know how God speaks to me? How can I gain wisdom? The Bible tells us in James chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Again, back to the word of God. God has given us wisdom literature in his word. The book of Proverbs has 31 chapters. Our longest month has 31 days. I'm a strong advocate that every child of God ought to read the book of Proverbs during the month that they were born. It's a good way to get godly wisdom and get God's perspective in your life. If you want more wisdom, you're not limited to just reading it during your birth month. Every 31 days, if you want to be on track to do what's right, to live a life that is God-honoring and Christ-exalting and pleasing in his sight, you ought to have wisdom in your life, and wisdom comes from the Word of God. The first principle, we must be wise in terms of how God speaks to us. The second principle, we must be biblical in terms of how we act. Biblical in terms of how we act. Ruth chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. We must be biblical in how we act. There are a lot of things that we don't know from the text in, in terms of the book of Ruth. We don't know how long uh, she had been working with Boaz's young women. We do know that the barley and wheat harvest lasted anywhere on the short end from six weeks on the long end till 10 weeks. So they've had a lot of interaction together. Uh, Boaz has seen the work ethic of Ruth. Boaz uh, knows that she is a, a noble woman. He is a godly man, godly uh, in his, his, his commitment, gracious in his conduct, and guided in his choices. He is a man of character. Uh, 
There's no indication that he's ever been married. Ruth, on the other hand, we do know has been married. He's an older man. Yet at the same time, he's a redeemer. He spent this much time with her. He knows her. But he also recognizes that he is not the closest redeemer, that there is another man who should have first right of refusal for buying back the property and taking on Ruth, the Moabite, as his wife. Now, what's the point? The point is, or the principle is rather, that Boaz is being biblical in his action, knowing and recognizing that there is a redeemer who would be closer and next in line before him. Sometimes, because God has made us in his own image, he's given us the opportunity to exercise free will. And when we want something bad enough, we will superimpose our will on the will of God. If we're going to be biblical and expect God to bless our life, our actions, the things that we do, then there's no way around doing it God's way. It means that we have to guard our passions. It means that we have to keep our desires in subjection so that we don't allow them to push us beyond the boundaries or outside the will of God. How do we do that? The Bible tells us in Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Oftentimes, my friend, you will hear a person, well, just follow your heart. What does your heart say? The Bible is clear. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The only thing that you trust with all your heart is a person, and that's the Lord himself. God has never broken anybody's heart. God has never led anybody's heart astray. God has never disappointed or let anybody who put their trust in him down. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Because we live in light of Christ and not like Ruth and who lived before Christ has come, we live in light of the ever-present abiding Holy Spirit. And God says in his word in John 16, 13, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God, all the same, will speak to us for the purpose of guiding us into all truth and what's right, so that we might be biblical in how we act. The next principle that I want us to see here in Ruth is we must be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We must be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Ruth chapter 3, beginning at verse 13 and ending at verse 15. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, 
that as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. Here we have Boaz as a man of character acting with integrity. The first thing he does is he's sensitive to the needs of Ruth. That by biblical covenantal law, she stands a right to have a husband from a near redeemer. She has the right to have property bought back that would have been the inheritance of her husband as the firstborn and as the oldest son. By the same token, too, he recognizes that he is not the near redeemer, that there's somebody else's present. She's taken a great risk to extend this level of proposal. She's a foreigner in a land whose cultures and customs she's not native to, nor intimately familiar with. She's following the counsel of her mother-in-law. I want you to notice what Boaz does. He goes to protect her reputation. He says, don't let it be known that you came to the threshing floor. He has not done anything illegal. He has not done anything illicit. There's been no practice of immorality. He knows that. Ruth knows that. But he also knows that there are gossipers, potential gossipers around. This is a good indication and a good principle, beloved, as a follower of Jesus. Live a life of principle so that your good would never be evil spoken of. The Bible encourages us to live a life of above reproach, uh, to be blameless, in what we do because there's no cause for innuendo. There's no cause for misinterpretation. There's no cause to misread like the ad in the, in the article. But even more so than that, recognizing that we have to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Boaz is a near relative there's a much nearer relative. Who is going to be the one to get to exercise the right of Redeemer? Well, the other relative has first right of refusal. And sometimes when we are following the leading of the Holy Spirit, we have to recognize that God will answer us by saying yes. That means I can have what I want just like I asked for it. Sometimes God says, wait. That doesn't mean no. That means that maybe the timing is not right. Things are not in place. Or maybe that there are some other folk that need to be involved in it. Let me show you a good example of that in 
scripture from one of the New Testament giants, the life of the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10, we find these words. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Luke, the writer of Acts, is recording this second missionary journey. It was the will of the Holy Spirit that they would take the second missionary journey. And when Paul and Barnabas were discovering, they split into two teams. Barnabas took John Mark and went to Cyprus, and Paul takes Silas and goes back to visit to strengthen the churches that they had already gone. I want you to notice that as Luke records, he begins by saying, and they went through, and they were forbidden, and when they came, <clears throat> and I want you to notice that twice when they went to the region of Phrygia and Galatia, the Holy Spirit said, don't speak the word in Asia. Did Paul go to Asia? Yes, he did. Holy Spirit is telling him, you're not going now. They're on the great plateau. Paul is a city preacher looking for urban areas where an influx of people and there's a great opportunity to preach the gospel there, but impact others as they leave the big city to go back to their home land, wherever that may be, in another country or in villages. He's a big city preacher. Holy Spirit says no. They continue down the Great Plateau and get to Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit says you can't go there either. Now, I want you to get this. Can you imagine the position that the apostle must have felt having a team of people who's following him, who's on this missionary journey to strengthen the church. And every time he gets ready to go to a place to strengthen churches, the Holy Spirit says no. Can you imagine what it's like being a leader, sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit and having to tell folk on your team, folk who are trusting your guidance, don't know where we're going, waiting on the Holy Spirit to let me know when, to give me the green light. What I like about it is while they were waiting, they kept walking, kept walking, knowing and believing. That's an act of faith, that while we're walking, God's going to speak. While we're waiting on him, that's not our cue to stop. We're going to keep walking in the direction until God opens the door of opportunity for us. Did Paul go to Asia? Yes, he did. Did he go to Ephesus? Yes. Why did the Holy Spirit say no? 
want to suggest to us that the timing was not right. You can do the right thing, but at the wrong time, and that makes it wrong. Plus, the team wasn't in place. He hadn't had a chance to come across that great evangelistic couple in the persons of Priscilla and Aquila. He would meet them when he gets to Corinth because of their occupation, their former friendship, and then start talking about the word of God. He'd see them operate to strengthen Apollos. Uh, Paul was perhaps too immature to go to Ephesus at that time. Whatever the reason, Holy Spirit said, no, don't go there. That delay was not a denial. What really strikes me, you don't see it in the text, even though we read it, you'd have to know the geography. Paul walks 750 miles while waiting on the Holy Spirit to tell him. That's more than 24 hours that he's waiting. That's more than a week that he's waiting. That says a lot for how we need to be patient when it comes to receiving godly direction and instruction. And that leads me to the last principle. We must be patient in how we respond. Ruth chapter 3, the last three verses. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. These words that Naomi tells Ruth, her daughter-in-law, Wait. Wait. One of the difficult, challenging things for a child of God is to exercise patience. Patience is not just about waiting, but it's being able to endure cheerfully in the midst of adverse circumstances. Not groaning or complaining that focuses on the circumstances, but being able to do so cheerfully, focusing on the expectation and the outcome. The Bible says it like this in Romans 8, 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, We wait for it with patience. This word hope is not an abstract wish or desire. It's expectation that things are going to turn out just like God said they would. Which means that just because we cannot trace God's hand, we have to trust his heart and wait 
cheerfully with expectation that all of what God is looking to bring about in your life and mine will come to pass. What is God looking to do? Is he looking to make you comfortable? No, he's not. He's looking to transform your character, to make your character into the character of Jesus Christ. Well, what's the character of Christ like? Glad you asked. The Bible tells us, Galatians chapter 5, 22-23, we get the fruit of the Spirit enumerated. Now, all of us need the fruit of the Spirit, but the process whereby God produces fruit in our life changes. For example, if I need love and another person needs patience and someone else needs joy, we all need the fruit, but the process is different for each of us because of our need, but the way in which the process is manifested is the same. God doesn't produce love in my life by putting me in juxtaposition with the most lovely and likable people. He puts me in juxtaposition with some of the most difficult, contrary, honorary people, hard to love folk, to birth in me love. If I need joy, God doesn't put me around joyful circumstances. He puts me right smack in the midst of sorrow that the joy of the Lord might be my strength to produce joy in the midst of that sorrow. And if I need patience, then God has to throw me on front street with chaos so that patience might be birthed in me. Now, I don't care what you refuse to ask God for, God. I'm not going to ask for patience because I don't want God to do that for me. I'm not going to ask God for joy because I don't want God to do that for me. Whether you ask for it or not, his goal, his mission in your life and mine is to make us into the character of Jesus Christ. And one thing we do know for sure, by his word, God is in love with Jesus. And when we become transformed into the character of Christ, if it were possible, God would fall more in love with us. Beloved, if we are going to gain from the principles and rules, Recognize we must be wise in terms of how God speaks to us. We need to understand that. We must be biblical in terms of how we act. Don't let our emotions or our desires dictate, but let the word of God dictate. We must be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes God wants to give to us what we want when we want it. Sometimes God is looking to produce something in us. Maybe the time is not right. Maybe the team is not in place. And then we must be patient in how we respond. Don't let the circumstances uh, be a thermostat to determine your patience. But crank up your patience. Let it be a thermometer. I mean, don't let it be a thermometer, let it be a thermostat. Crank it up so that you might be patient in all things. The only way I know to do that is to invite the one in your life who was wise, who was biblical, who was sensitive, and who exercised patience for you and me. 
and his name is Jesus. We offer Christ to you, my brother, my sister. He will give you brand new life through life abundantly. Won't you come and give your life to Christ?